Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is an especially celebratory episode for two reasons. First, it's the 52nd show and wraps a full year of being on the air here at Voice America. My gratitude to everyone at the station, all who've been guests or callers, and most of all, to every listener out there for your desire to learn, grow, and say it skillfully. Thank you. And I am over the moon for this sixth episode of Our Voices with a guest I'm in awe of and feel most privileged to host. Before I introduced her, these monthly Our Voices episodes are meant to give you an inside view of my guest's life journey and what's shaped them. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone to live to their full potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity and without judgment and gain empathetic understanding of people you might not otherwise encounter. I hope you'll better appreciate the many different experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. Perhaps in unexpected ways, you'll also see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace we're more similar than not. With that, it's my honor to be joined by Anne Hobson Pilot, a pioneer and global icon of brilliance in classical music. She is revered as one of the greatest harpists, harpists on the planet and going strong in her 50-year career. At age 23, she broke the color and gender barriers to join the Washington National Symphony, the first African-American woman in any orchestra. From there on to the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Boston Pops. She's worked with and beloved by the world's greatest conductors. Among countless honors, I'll mention just one. As she retired from the Boston Symphony in 2009, John Williams, renowned as greatest film composer of all time, including my favorite, Star Wars, at Anne's request, wrote and dedicated an entire harp concerto just for her. Anne, you're an inspiration, and I welcome you to the show. Thank you, Molly. It's wonderful to be here. It's really a treat, and we're all in for a great treat today. And your journey journey started in West Philadelphia, and I'd be grateful if you take us back to your early days, what life was like for you then, along the way, how you navigated to the pinnacle of success that you know, I'm not really sure you could have envisioned as a young girl. No, I definitely could not have. Yeah, I was born in West Philly and um, actually lived there until I was five years old. My father was in the army and was stationed in Germany. Um, it was just right after the, the war. Um, and so when I was five, and I have one older sister who's seven, when we were those ages, uh, my mother took us to Germany to live with uh, our father as, as a family. So we spent about three and a half to four years in Germany. Um, for me, that was ages five to nine. Um, we, we stayed in, uh, in the town of Gießen, 
but we went to army schools and we were ed educated in army schools where we did learn German, though most of my German is totally gone by this point. <laughs> um, when, during that time, when I was between five and nine, I started piano lessons. My mother was a concert pianist. And um, when we were in Philly, she, she gave piano lessons, but uh, there were, was not much available for her in the concert world as a, an African-American female pianist. But in Germany, she was able, able to give uh, quite a few concerts, a soloist with, with orchestras and, and recitals. So I had my early experiences watching her perform. And it was very exciting, of course, for, for us. Um, so anyway, during the, the, those ages, I started piano lessons, at first with my mother, but that didn't work out too well. So I had another, another teacher um, that I, I went to. But piano never really, I guess you would say, spoke to me as an instrument. I, as I think it was probably because my mother was such an accomplished pianist and I could hear her um, playing uh, what seemed to be easily. And my older sister played the piano also. So uh, it was, I was struggling along and decided when we came back to the States when I was nine years old, um, I decided that I wanted to take up an instrument of my own. My first choices were not available at my school, which was the Philadelphia High School for Girls. And uh, I wanted to study the flute or the violin or the cello, and they were not available. So the music teacher said, why don't you take up the harp? It would be good with your piano background because the reading is, is the same, treble and bass clef. And uh, so I started the harp and really loved it from the first day. I think, I think what I liked about it is um, you're able to make music just with your hands. Um, there's no loud or soft pedal. There's no uh, sustaining pedal. Everything has to be done with your hands. And so to me, that was very exciting. So I did practice the harp and I became um, good at it early be because I practice. And I guess there's a, there's a lesson in that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had a little bit more than just practice. I'm just, I'm going to go out on a limb. There was some additional talent that you were blessed with. Um, yes, and, and also it was very helpful to have been hearing classical music in my home from basically from the time I was born. So it, it wasn't anything unusual um, for me to, to uh, you know, to take that, that route, to, to want to be a, a classical, in this case, a classical harpist. One question when, you know, I, I played the violin like hacker level, okay, compared to you. I found that the music as a, you know, a young person, there's a lot going on, right, for young people. And music for me was quite an expressive outlet and I think a great way to just manage myself. I'm wondering how you found, you know, kind of what, how music served you as a young girl. That's a very good description of it. You know, as I said, I, I didn't find the same, um, the same re rewards when I was studying piano, as probably because I didn't really focus on it. But, you know, when I started the harp, I definitely found it rewarding, and therefore I, I focused on it qu 
quite a bit and it was it was very painful at first because when you first start to play the the harp and you don't have any protection on your your fingers your fingers are soft and because i was practicing so much i got these huge water blisters on my fingertips and had to puncture them with a needle and all of this and and still i persisted so uh and you also have to keep your nails short so some of the girls that that um that started the harp at the same time that I did quit after a short amount of time because they preferred long nails to, to short nails. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, obstacles that could have stopped me from playing, but I just enjoyed it so, so much that uh, obviously a hundred years later, I'm still doing it. So I must enjoy it. <laughs> Before we go forward, I would like, could you give a little overview of this just wonderful instrument. You know, I played in the orchestra and I was a little bit of what you shared. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that because I would love our listeners to just get a little bit uh, better educated on this fabulous instrument. Yeah, well, the first time I saw a harp, it was at my school, Girls High. um, And it was lying on the floor of our auditorium. Someone had obviously been playing it and then they just laid it down on, on the floor, which rarely happens and I was looking at it curiously I also didn't know anything about the harp and I remember looking at it thinking look at those pedals I didn't realize the harp had pedals so um and then when my music teacher said why don't you study the harp I thought well that'll be interesting to find find out what this is all about well the concert harp has 47 strings and seven foot pedals uh, the best way to think of them, the pedals, there's one for every note of the musical scale, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And each pedal has three notches for flat, natural, and sharp. So if you're changing the A pedal from A flat to A natural, all the A's on the harp change, or to A sharp, all the, all the A's change. And you, you, I mean, obviously we only have two feet, so you have to navigate those seven pedals um, pretty quickly, and if, if you make a mistake, if you change the wrong pedal or something, then you're playing in the wrong key. So it's a difficult instrument because you have to be um, very limber to be able to um, do all of that with you know two hands and two feet and seven pedals and all of that. So. It's a complicated instrument, but I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a beautiful instrument. That's fascinating because each pedal has three positions. And I, I just, I had no, I mean, I had, how many years did I play in orchestra? I didn't know the harpists were moving their feet. You know, that's really, that was completely unknown to me. So thank you, Anne, for sharing that. Um, you had shared a bit about your early um, music school and, you know, and, and, you know, you were a pioneer. I mean, this was not a, um, you know, diversity kind of friendly space that you went into. So I'd love to share a bit about your formal educational journey. Well, um, Girls High, Philadelphia High School for Girls was a very, um, it, it was kind of like almost an exam school. You had to have a certain uh, IQ to go there. You had to pass a test and all of that. So um, the, the, the students were all, all uh, very intellectual and, and 
it was a, it was a great school, and they really had a lot of focus on on music. It was not I wouldn't especially call it diverse, but there were other black students um, at the school, and I found no um, no prejudice at all when when it came to playing music or my study of the harp, though there were some comments from, from people that said things like, you play the harp? I've never heard of a black harpist before. Har harpists are supposed to be angels and whoever heard of a black angel? Oh. <laughs> so there, there were um, comments like, like that. But then when I went to the, my first school out of high school was the Philadelphia Musical Academy where it was quite a diverse group of students. There were a lot of black students there and I felt very comfortable there. Um, <clears throat> some, sometime, I guess it was in my second year at the Philadelphia Musical Academy, one of the violin teachers at the school asked me, he'd heard me play and I guess he liked my playing and asked me if I'd be interested in playing for at the Latin Casino for, at the time, the uh, the entertainer was Johnny Mathis. Well, he certainly didn't have to ask me twice because I was a big fan of Johnny Mathis. <laughs> and so that was my first professional experience outside of playing in, in church or um, small, small things like that. But this was a, I, I think it had about 3,000 seats, uh, the Latin casino, um, and, and pe people had meals there and drinks and um, as I said, jo Johnny Mathis performed, and uh, it was very exciting for me. I was 18 years old, and uh, he he would come over. He, he made me part part of his his act. He came over when he would sing "Chances Are." I found out this was going to happen. I didn't know it was going to happen, but he did it every night when he came over and sang on bended knee to me, who was sitting there scared to death. He would sing "Chances Are." So that was fun, and I got my picture taken with him and all. And then there were other, other performers that I also got to work with, Peggy Lee and Andy Williams. So that was my first really professional experience until I left Philadelphia Musical Academy to go to the Cleveland Institute of Music, where I studied with a very famous harp teacher there, Alice Shalafu. And uh, then my, my uh, route became more classical. So I basically, um, you know, all, all my studies were in, in classical training. Wow. The, um, I do want to just go back to this never heard of black angels. Harpists are supposed, you know, supposed to be angels. When you heard things like that as a young girl, because you're so, your energy is so calm and you're so, you know, there's just a steadiness to you. Did that, did you not really think about it? Did you let that roll off of you? Was there, I mean, you, you know, you say that like it really didn't affect you emotionally. And I think that's a really big ask, you know? Um, no, I, I let it roll off of me. I mean, I found that there were quite a few things I had to let roll off of me. And uh, I mean, a lot of these things that people say, and either they they do it intentionally to hurt you or they don't realize it's hurtful. Either way, 
it's kind of silly what, what, they're, what they're saying. If, if they're saying, who ever heard of a black, a black angel? Well, why not a black angel, you know? So if, if you can hear these things and laugh at them, it, it, it doesn't, um, you know, I, I don't like being angry and, and anger is bad for, for you. So it's, it's, it's better to, to uh, I think, let these things roll, roll off of you and treat it with a sense of humor. And did you, did you just do that? Did your mother help you with that? Because that's a that's a pretty advanced thing. I have to be, you know, to be to be well, honest. Yeah, my my mother was a very strong woman, and uh, I, you know, I don't remember even having conversations with her or with my father about these kinds of things. I think a, a lot of times I didn't even discuss it with with them because it was by the time I got home it was forgotten. Well, that's really brilliant. Uh, you did mentioned to me a bit of, um, I think it was at the Cleveland Institute, where uh, maybe not the most, uh, maybe one of the early encounters, I guess, of racial bias that was quite memorable. Will you share that with our, our listeners? Well, that actually was an episode that was very hurtful. Um, as I said, I was in Philadelphia Musical Academy for two and a half years, and uh, I was given by a woman who was like my mentor, Edna Phillips Rosenbaum. She had been the principal harpist of the, of the Philadelphia Orchestra for many, many years um, until she retired. And she kind of uh, took an interest in me and look, looked after my well-being. And she thought that I, would, I should go to the Cleveland Institute of Music because of the quality of the harp teaching there. Um, and so she arranged for me to get a full tuition scholarship there from the Philadelphia Foundation. She was on the board of the Philadelphia Foundation. So while I was in Philadelphia, I had been living at home. Um, so when we went out to Cleveland in January, the middle of the year, I was going to stay in the dorm, the Case Western dorms, because that's where if Cleveland Institute of Music students wanted to stay in a dorm, that's where they stayed. And my parents wanted to, thought it was safer for me to be in a dorm um, than to get my own apartment. So they drove me to Cleveland and uh, I checked into my room, took all my stuff, met my roommate, and then we went out to dinner. And when we came back and my parents left and I went into the room, my, my, <laughs> I, have to, I have to laugh at this, my roommate had moved out she had taken all of her clothes and books and everything she owned and moved out. And she told the house mother that she would not room with a black person. I mean, I can laugh at it now, but it was, it, that was very hurtful and especially hurtful because um, I think I was one, either the only or one of the only black students in the dorm. And so all of the uh, other students heard about it and, and it, it just traveled all over. And so I had a lot of people coming up to me. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I heard what happened to you. So it was infuriating. And uh, it took me a while to forget that. The interesting thing is also, she, she was also a Cleveland Institute of Music student, a pianist. And I have no idea what happened to her. I, I, I think it was 
a month after that incident that I forgot her name. I, I didn't even recognize her in the halls or anything. So again, it, it was, I was able to let that roll off of me eventually. That is a very strong inner core. And how did your, how did your parents respond to that? You know, once again, I don't remember telling them. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I was still in the same room and there was no, I, I, and I, if you ask me, I, I don't know why I didn't tell them, but I didn't. <laughs> did, you, did it ever come out with them later, later years or just it was never, they never knew? I don't think, I don't think that they, they ever knew. As a matter of fact, I had forgotten about it until I was asked in 2018 to be the commencement speaker at the Cleveland Institute of Music when I was receiving an honorary doctorate of music. And so I had to think of stories to tell. Um, and that was the, the first time I ever told that story in public was in, in that speech. And it, as I said, it was basically because I, I'd forgotten about it. And then it was like, oh, yeah, that, that happened. Well, let me tell that story. Be, because the subject of my speech was overcoming adversity. And so it was a perfect lead into that to say, well, I came to school and this is what happened to me. And, you know, that's adversity. And you, everybody's going to have adversity at some point, And you have to learn how to overcome it. And so that, that was the theme of of my speech. But I, I, of course, I told my husband, I told my sister, but I don't remember ever telling my parents. It's just crazy. Did you have, um, you know, with people who uh, may not have been so supportive, did you have periods of self-doubt? You just seem so, you know, just inner, inward, just directed, true north directed. You knew what you were doing. Unflappable is a word that comes to mind. Did you have moments of, why am I doing this? Is this possible? I, I don't remember one time when I had any self, self-doubt. And I attribute that not only to me, but to the, the people that supported me. I mean, when, when I was young, the woman that I just mentioned, Edna Phillips Rosenbaum, who was a, a seasoned veteran of the harp, one of the most famous harpists in the world, she had faith in me. I, I remember her saying to me at one, at one time, um, you know, and um, you're going to have to be twice as good as, as everybody else. And, and when she said that to me, I thought, what is she talking about? I honestly did. I, I didn't know what she was talking about at first. And then I said, I thought to myself, oh, okay. She's talking about because of race. She couldn't come out and say it. But that's, that's what she said. And she basically was saying that she knew that I could. And my teacher, Alice Shalafu, was, was the, the same way. Um, I also told a story at the Cleveland Institute of Music. Um, what Miss Shalafu used to say to me some, sometimes, if, I mean, the first time she said it was, she, she liked the way I was playing a certain uh, passage. And so she said to me, Annie, she goes to call me Annie. Annie, when you were playing that piece just now, I forgot that you were black for a minute. <laughs> now that could uncover all kinds of of uh, of interesting theories. You know, why do do people hear with color, or do people? You know, it's, it was kind of an interesting thing for her to say. 
But once again, I mean, it, I, I didn't consider it, it as an insult. I considered it as an interesting thing to say, you know. Yeah. So just for listeners, this is a very powerful concept, right? And that ability for within oneself to interpret how you want to interpret. And many people, I think, get dragged down, right? And what I'm hearing is, and you're just staying high and, and able to transcend this and not just not big deal, like not a big deal, moving on, all fine. Did you realize how much pioneering you were doing at the time? I mean, obviously you look back, you're like, geez, you know, it's crazy to see that. But while you're in motion doing this, did it really dawn on you how pivotal, you know, the, the path that you were trailblazing? Not at all. As a matter of fact, um, I went, I, I was honored by the League of American Orchestras in a couple years ago. I can't remember the exact year. And uh, I, again, I had to give a speech there. And um, what's, what surprised me is after I gave my speech and I had to play and I got my award, it was called the Golden Patat Award, and it had been given to such luminaries as Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland. I mean, it's, it's really, a, and, and the year after I got it, Yo-Yo Ma got it. Oh so God. it was really a very prestigious award. But after, after I gave my speech and we were on our way out, there was this trail of young African-American, well, they, they were young to me, African-American people standing there waiting to speak to me. And, you know, almost all of them came up and said, you know, I'm playing in the, let's say, the Phoenix Symphony now, and it's all because of you. Because I used to watch you on Evening at Pops and Evening at Symphony, and, and it made me realize that I could do this too. And it was this whole trail of, of, of people. And I mean, I said to my husband, I can't believe this. I had no idea. So uh, no, I, I was not aware of it. And I guess to their credit or not, I don't know, the Boston Symphony never made a big deal about having a black player at that time. I mean, we're talking about 1969, and when I was in Washington, same thing, 1966 to 69, when all the civil unrest was, was going on, I would just go in and, and, you know, I was hired to play the harp, and I did that to the best of my ability. And if, something, if somebody said something that I didn't like, I was able to just calmly say, you know, that's not acceptable or what, what, whatever. But, but back to your point, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was giving a virtual master class. Well, it wasn't really a master class. It was students, young African-American, these were really young African-American students who were studying the harp. And that they were probably middle school, maybe high elementary school, I'm not sure, but they, they had questions for me. And one of the questions a, a girl asked was, what advice would you give to us if we want to be a harpist since we're African-American. And I, I guess she expected me to say, I don't know what she expected me to say, actually, come to think of it. Maybe, maybe she expected me to say, well, you're going to have to be twice as good as everybody else or something. But what I did say, I mean, because it, it took me aback. It kind of made me think, well, that's not the way you approach this. You approach this as I want to be the best harpist I can be and, and not 
not go into it with a defeatist attitude to start with, well, I'm African-American, so therefore I shouldn't be doing this or, you know, what, whatever she, she meant. Um, but, but I, and, oh, what, what I did say to her was, can you imagine if I had felt that way when I started the harp at 14 years old? Well, I can't be doing this. I mean, I would have cost myself an entire wonderful career in music. So the important thing is you can't start off by saying, well, I'm African-American, so this is going to hold me back. You just have to have to have confidence and do it. That's fantastic. And that is the empowerment. And people, I think, are always tending to look that someone else gives them permission or someone says that. And, you know, that's got to be part of what comes from within. So I really hope listeners are taking that. You know, and when, when people share with you how remarkably you have influenced them how do you, how do you feel oh it makes me extremely proud especially since i didn't know it <laughs> you know i mean it, it it makes me proud that's the only word i can think of and um you, you know it, it's i look back and think well how could i not have known that you know what's what but, you know, I, I guess I kind of had blinders on. I was so, so intent on doing a good job because it's not, it's not easy. Being, you know, you realize in a symphony orchestra, um, I originally was hired as assistant principal harp, but 11 years into my tenure, my 40-year tenure, the principal harpist retired and I became the only harpist for 29 years I was the only harpist in the orchestra. So all the souls fell to me. If anybody played wrong, if there was a wrong note that came from the harp, everybody knew who it came from, which of course can't happen. Not, not with an orchestra as prestigious as the Boston Symphony was. So it was very um, intense. It was very challenging, but it was also very re- rewarding. And I think that that's why um, that, that's why I, I was able to be successful without being um, uh, overly, what's the word, uh, overly full of my, my, myself. I was just doing my, my job and, and I didn't get a big head or anything like, like that. Well, it's so clear. I love that about you. And I just think that this is insane. Wrong notes can't happen. You know, in business, people can make mistakes, they can recover. But hearing you say that wrong notes can't happen, you know, that just means there's pressure there. That's right. How, how did you, how did you learn? Did you always just know how to deal with pressure, Anne? Or was that something you learned? Help us with some of the things that you did to stay in, because you have to stay in a moment of flow, right? Because if you're too obsessed about it, that's when mistakes actually happen. So share with right. us your, how you handle Well, I think I learned how to focus early on. And, and that might have come from um, some my my teachers, you know, who, who might have um, instilled that in me. And it certainly comes in recognition if you do something wrong. You know, if, if, if the mistake with one of those 47 strings or seven pedals with 21 positions, I mean, some, something can go wrong. And obviously, in my 43-year c- career, that's not to say that nothing ever went wrong. But when it does, it certainly wakes you up and, and teaches you how to focus. 
so can you give us what, what do you, do you remember? It's, to me, it sounds like you probably made like a handful of mistakes in your whole career, but do you remember like a mistake and how you felt and was it, you know, was it a huge one? How did you recover? Well, um, I, I think the, the key is to not dwell on, on a mistake. For, for example, uh, in my teaching at times, when I'm preparing a student for recital or some, something like that, if they do make, make a mistake and it, it distracts them so much that they can't go on, that, that's, that's bad. That's bad. You have to be able to um, continue. You have to be able to, I guess, pretend that it didn't happen and just, and just you know, go, go, go through it, play through it. That's amazing. Can we switch gears to personal life? Would you share, you know, meeting Prentice and how did you weave, who I understand is a musician as well, how did you weave the two insane musician career? <laughs> for the well, I met him. He was, he was playing double bass at the time, string bass, and uh, he was playing at a rest, restaurant or a little uh, bar um, in the Colonnade Hotel, which was right diagonally across the street from Symphony Hall. And I had gone into the restaurant for dinner with a, a friend of mine who played the harp. And uh, we were having dinner, and then we went into the coffee shop. And he was sitting in the coffee shop with his trio. They, they were on a break. And I looked over and I thought, well, who is, who is he? Because he's a very handsome man, I think. And, uh, you know, so we were sitting there eating or having coffee at the time. And he came over to me and he said, excuse me, aren't you Ann Hobson? And I said, yes. <laughs> so he introduced himself. Uh, he, he, as I said, he was a bass player with a trio, but he was also a, a teacher at that time in the Boston public schools, later became director of music for the city of Boston. But uh, he took my number down and uh, he, he called. But he had also said to me, you know, why, why don't you come hear the group sometime? We're here every Friday and Saturday nights. And so the first opportunity I could, I had my, my friend come with me. And we, that next Friday, we w walked into the, the, uh, the bar area where they were playing and he waved at me and the rest is history. You came and sat down at the table and we exchanged uh, numbers and um, we've been married now for 40 years. Oh, huge congratulations. I love those kinds of love stories. I, I can't imagine if he's like, aren't you Ann Hobson? Were you just beside yourself? You know who I am. Well, of course he knows who you are. <laughs> <laughs> that is so sweet. Um, so the, uh, a few things, some international travel came in. In 1997, you were invited to go um, to Johannesburg. Will you tell us a bit about that? And, um, you know, I think you were also visiting uh, Namibia, and it just seems like it was a very, very meaningful um, time for you. Yeah, um, I had taken a sabbatical from the BSO for a year, and Prentice and I decided instead of just sitting at home or what, what, whatever, that we, we had always wanted to go to, to Africa. And um, as a matter of fact, I was on the tennis court, <laughs> we were talking about tennis earlier, I was on the tennis court with a friend of mine who worked at WGBH, which is uh, Boston's 
um, P- PBS station. Mm-hmm. And I was telling her about this trip and how I, uh, we were going on this trip to Africa. And I wanted to research the origin of the harp while I was there. And she said, oh, she, she has some friends that um, work at, at GBH that would, would be, be interested in this. And so she asked if it was okay to mention it to them. And I said, sure, of course. So she did. She talked to them about it, and they contacted me, and they said they'd like to do a documentary about me um, going to Africa and, and uh, all that that entailed. And, you know, would, would it be okay for them to send a, a film crew? And, of course, that, that, that was fine with me. <laughs> <So> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I, I also had arranged through... I had an agent at that time through, through my agent to solo with the National Symphony of Johannesburg. So they filmed that, me soloing with the, the Johannesburg Symphony. And uh, I did a master class there. They filmed that. And then they had us uh, going out to Namibia. They hired a little plane and we went to N- Namibia to visit the San people who um, play all these interesting instruments, including what they call, what I would call a musical bow. So it's basically just a bow and arrow. And a man played that and they show that on the film. And he uses his mouth as a resonator and he uses a stick to change the pitch of the, of, of the string. Um, so they had that. And then there was uh, a man who played the owachi, which is, a harp-like instrument, but it's not made out of wood. It's more a metal thing, but it does have strings across it. So they showed him playing that. And then, um, because I couldn't bring the harp to Namibia, by by the way, the Johannesburg concert, I had to borrow a harp for that. Uh, But for for this, um, the cameraman showed his, uh, on his camera, me playing the concert in Johannesburg. And of course, we, we couldn't communicate. I mean, they, they didn't speak English, but they, they were absolutely thrilled and asta- astonished, I think, to see me playing the harp. I think that's available. That film is called Ann Hobson Pilot, A Musical Journey, and is now available on YouTube for anybody that wants to see it. Yes, I will be putting uh, some great links for people to actually see you in action. Um, and I had a delightful time going through them. Wow. Um, that the part that I and I love the part where you're out in the village and the faces when they um, when when you showed them the video. Yes, yes, <laughs> amazing. Um, you know, I I appreciate you know you you mentioned your mother, an amazing example. I would say the sponsorship and encouragement from Alice and Edna. Yeah, and you've worked with really the luminaries in classical music. Anyone else come to mind? Um, who's who really you know helped pave the way or sponsor or you think really created space for you to flourish? Um, oh, there there were just so many that uh, that you know contributed to my success. Of course, my my family, my parents, my sister, and most importantly, my my husband has been a real. Uh, support for for me and through through all of this and uh and 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 it was helpful that he was involved in music also 
because uh, especially he played with the Boston Pops for 22 years wow. after we, we met. And so he knew the same people, you know, he knew, um, we, we shared that. And we, we also for quite, quite a few times shared the stage of the Boston Pops and one time with the BSO also. So that was really fun being able to look across the stage and see him playing. Um, so, and uh, of course, some of the conductors that I feel were very uh, supportive of me, e even our music director for, that was there for so long, Seiji Ozawa, was very supportive. James Le Levine, who was there when I retired, and he's, he's the one that uh, offered to give me a retirement gift because I stayed a little longer because, as he asked me to. I was going to retire about two or three years earlier than I did. And he asked me to stay and he said he'd give me a retirement gift. And he asked me what I wanted for a retirement gift. And I said, oh, it would be great to have a new harp concerto. So he said, who would you like to write it? And I thought for quite a while. And then I said, well, maybe John Williams. Because John Williams is... Um, on, on par with Johnny Mathis for, for me. I mean, he's like a real, a real star, a real wonderful person. And I had worked with him for 30 years with the Pops. So we asked him and at first he said no, because he thought it was, you know, he was doing many, many more Star Wars and all this stuff. And he thought the harp was difficult to write for, which it is. But finally he agreed and he wrote this wonderful concerto, dedicated it to me and, uh, it's, you know, that, that, that was a real honor from him. That's amazing. I understand that it, didn't the concerto become part of one of the top elite harp uh, contests? Right. The, the competitions. The, the Israel harp competition. Um, I can't remember. It was probably 2011 or 2012 that um, that was the final work on the, competition, um, which all the harpists that joined the competition had to play. So uh, he was thrilled. And of course, I felt sorry for all those, those people that had to learn that difficult piece, but I did it for them, <laughs> so they could do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's, let's switch gears a bit. Um, the word, I'm going to bring up the word privilege. When I say the word privilege, Anne, what comes up for you? Well, um, because of all the talk about racial justice and social unrest, unrest and all of that, I guess at this point it would be white privilege would, would come up. Because, I mean, certainly in my route to being a successful harpist, just about everybody along the way was a privileged white person. It's, 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 not, it's not inexpensive to be a harpist. The instrument is, costs a lot and the strings even cost a lot. And then you have to buy a car, that, a wagon or something to carry the harp around. So a lot of the uh, harpists that I grew, well, I didn't really grow up with them, but because I didn't start the harp till I was 14 but that I knew during that time were white, privileged, young people. Um, and there, 
there just were not that, it, it wasn't until years later that I finally found another, or met another black harpist. So I guess that's what I would think of. Yeah. Thanks for that. When you mentioned the students and, you know, your teacher telling you you had to be twice as good, um, I was taken because you've been teaching so long um, and I had understood that only in the last decade or so did you really have, you know, black students. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what you think, you know, your experience of that, maybe your surprise that it's been, you know, kind of so long until you you had black students and, and, you know, what needs to happen in classical music to create even more opening uh, for more diverse musicians? Well, it still, it still is amazing that there's, I think the figure is um, less, is about 2% of American orchestras have black or Latino players in them, which considering the amount of black and um, brown pe- people that live in the country, that's well underrepresented. And I mean, it's such a difficult subject as to why that is the case. Uh, back in 1969, when I auditioned for the BSO, it was behind a screen. And the screen had just, um, they, they just started using screens. The major uh, sym- symphonies with the intention of um, trying to make it as fair as possible because up to that point, the orchestras had mostly been white men. So they wanted to open it up to people of color, to women, and to just make it more fair. Well, what happened was that women benefited a great deal. When I joined the BSO, there were like four women, and now there's... 40, 45, I, I've even lost count. But there's still only one black player. When I joined the BSO, I was the only black player. Then Owen Young, who's a wonderful cellist, joined. So there was two of us. And then when I left, there's still only one black, black player. So somehow the screen is not, um, is, is not helping as far as making the, the orchestras more diverse. So some people think they should take the screen down, um, but then that creates a whole other set of, of, of problems. Obviously, anybody that gets a job, especially a big job like this, they, w- they want to know that they, they made it, they, they got the job on their own merits. So, um, but what I think is happening now that is very good is, well, per- first of all, there are several programs that uh, focuses on, on string players. Uh, Project Step in Boston, Sphinx in D- Detroit, they focus on string players. String players because that's the largest group of players in a, a symphony. They're mostly string players. So they're focusing on people of color, kids of color, um, that, um, that can be that, that, that they can help with their training. They, they can help get them teachers. They can help get them instruments and all of that. So I think that things will gradually change. Also, I've heard that several orchestras, including the VSO, is now going to have a uh, a program where they will have that they will invite a person of color to 
play with the orchestra for a year or two, or I'm not sure how long it's going to be, to give them experience in playing in a, a symphony orchestra. So those kind of things are, are very important. And I think that it, it will create change. Another thing that would be wonderful if it would ever happen is to bring instrumental music back into the public schools. I mean, if I hadn't happened to have gone to Girls High and they happened to have a harp there, I certainly wouldn't have become a harpist because it never was an instrument that I knew that I would love. And so it, I never would have uh, been drawn to it. So music in the public schools, and I discuss this all the time with my husband, as I said, who was the director of music for the city of Boston. And then th they took a lot of the music out of the schools. So that would be a very important thing to, to, uh, to diversify our orchestras more. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, um, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking for me to hear those numbers, to be honest with you, because, you know, obviously the talent's there. I watched your video and I just saw a whole slew, you know, of, of young folks. And I am, I am wondering, do you feel culturally within these, you know, orchestras, do you feel like they're open to that? That's hard to answer, but it depends on the person. I'm sure there are a lot of them that would be very receptive to, to that, but the, then there might be others that, that won't, or that, you know, don't feel as if they want to share. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, just as all people are different and have different opinions, the, um, that's, that's the way it, it would be. That's why it's important for the, the orchestra, the orchestra management, to take the steps to uh, ensure that that, that, that happens, because you can't you can't leave it to the other players. Leadership. We need right. enlightened, bold leadership. And actually not that bold because it's the right and relatively easy thing to do these days. So we will cheer for that. Um, so let's segue to our, you know, we have the Say It Skillfully theme here. So, Anne, is there a conversation um, that you have now or that you've had in the past or you see others having that maybe we could talk through and for listeners and and help them be a bit more skillful handling this. These days I'm invited to quite a few panels about this issue of what to do to make orchestras more inclusive of, uh, of people of color. And so that's, that's a difficult problem. You know, as I said, should they take down the screen? Should they leave the screen up if they take down the screen and uh, there still is not um, any improvement, then what, what happens? So um, it's, not, it's, it, it's a subject that has no easy answers. Yeah, thank you for raising that. And, and this is, gets kind of to the heart of uh, what I see for a lot of problems is people tend to think it's kind of someone else's problem. Like how do... How does management make it more inclusive? How does the orchestra make it more inclusive? How do the people who want to apply do the right thing? And, you know, one lens one might put on that is, is thinking about, well, let's think about all the stakeholders and be honest here. How have we perhaps been contributing to the problem? And, and in an open-hearted way, asking, not in a judging or pointing fingers way, because I think sometimes confronting you know, we're all here in the situation. We've all been part of making this situation the way it is. 
right? Myself included, yeah. right? You're, and to, to perhaps give folks permission to think about, you know, it wasn't because we were intending for it to be one black cellist, <laughs> but that's right. the reality. So let's just be really open. You know, what, where is it that we perhaps, you know, have fallen short? Again, not intentionally and not out of malice. Um, and create a sense of what I would 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 want is a mutual, you know, accountability. And you know, I think you model for young people, wow, a way to just believe in yourself, right? And, right. and then all those folks who supported you for the folks who did, just realizing when you help a young person, you know, you have no idea how what might not might be a quite a small um, act or gesture or an offer to make a connection can really be game changing. For a young person, so That's I right. might offer that that could be a way to to think about it. Um, I could talk; we could talk all day. So I'd like to to wrap with a few questions for you, Anne. Um, what's the biggest compliment someone has given you? Uh, I probably would have to say um, when John Williams uh, said on in one of the films that was done about me that. Uh, he said, well, how was it? He put it, uh, she's the best that we have as, as a harpist. And he also, we, we were communicating by snail mail because he doesn't do email. And on one of the, the, the letters that he wrote to me, he said, you know, I'm your biggest fan. So when John Williams says that he's my biggest fan, I think that was a big compliment. Wow. That's game changing. That's fabulous. Um, and modeling growth, and you know, obviously, you're someone who's just always trying to be better. Um, share with listeners an area of growth that you have for yourself right now. Well, I'm always trying to be able to find time to exercise more. You know, we have this big pool, which is great. We swim a lot in the pool, but um, I I miss the tennis that we discussed. Mm-hmm flying. So I, I would like to get over to, we have a wonderful fitness center here and I haven't gotten there all year. So my goal is to go to the fitness center and maybe I can get back to playing tennis again. Who knows? Okay. I would love that. I would love that. And then lastly, you know, you've just been so generous and, uh, and real and I would expect nothing less. What was it like for you to share your story today? Um, I've actually enjoyed it, which I have always been, you probably can tell by some of the answers I gave, but I've always been a very private person. I don't do social media, Facebook, or any of those things. So I've always been private and kind of um, not opening up about all these things. But because of what's going on, um, I'm being asked a lot of questions about uh, my past and how this all happened. And so I am telling these stories now that I have never told before, like the, uh, the, uh, my roommate story. And I think on the Ted talk, I told about the man that said to me, what he said to me on my first day about fried chicken. (laughs) Um, So, but this this uh, this hour has gone very quickly and very pleasantly, and I've enjoyed speaking with you. Well, I uh, I wish I could give you a virtual hug, and you are absolutely 
and inspiration beyond words. I thank you for joining me. And uh, I call, you know, I always thank folks for being part of the solution as you are. And I'm here if I can ever be of service to you. And you don't hesitate to ask. Thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, what a gift to talk to this Zen trailblazer is kind of what comes to me about Anne. I'll share my thought for the week from Daisaiku Ikeda, which I'm probably butchering his name, 92-year-old Japanese Buddhist philosopher, educator, author, and nuclear disarmament advocate. And a shout out to my friend Vabov in India who shared this with me. From a healed, peaceful heart, humility is born. From humility, a willingness to listen to others is born. From a willingness to listen to others, mutual understanding is born. And from mutual understanding, a peaceful society will be born. And I'll wrap with my wish for you. May you be at peace. And thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show and amplify Anne's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 